Hi, it's Sophie Pascoe here and you're listening to my podcast, Outside the Lanes. A podcast proudly brought to you by Westpac New Zealand and produced by Raw Collective. To take on any challenge successfully, first you need to take care of yourself. As a Westpac ambassador, I've been exploring specific areas of growth to inspire you and I to achieve whatever we set our sights on. This is a podcast series that focuses on key themes that are very personal to me, such as leadership, values, balance, health, and more. I have carefully selected mentors who are successful in their field to have beautiful conversations with. In each and every episode, I will be asking a new interviewee about their learnings, their challenges, their wins, their journey, ultimately getting under the skin of what it takes to be in their lane. Welcome to the very first episode of Outside the Lanes. In today's show, I am talking with a very special man, Willie Apiata. This episode is all about values, and it's a conversation that was just so moving and so touching, and even quite emotional at times. Willie Apiata is New Zealand's only living recipient of the highest military honour we have, the Victoria Cross. As an elite soldier in New Zealand's SAS in 2004, his unit came under heavy fire in a nighttime raid in Afghanistan. One of Willie's fellow soldiers was seriously injured in the firefight, and Willie risked his own life to carry him more than 70 metres across exposed and rugged ground to the rest of his troops. Once back to safety, Willie then rearmed himself and returned to the action to continue to support his fellow soldiers. He was awarded the VC in highly unique circumstances in 2007. While SAS soldiers usually maintain strict anonymity, it was decided that the significance of such an award warranted it being done in public. Just 23 New Zealanders have been awarded the Victoria Cross, and Willie's was the first since World War II. It's commonly believed that in order to qualify for the Victoria Cross, the winner must have undergone a 90% chance of being killed. If you've never heard Willie speak before, he has a real warmth that makes him extremely engaging, and it underlies his strengths. We talk about the traits and the things Willie values most, how he manages his own PTSD, and how winning the Victoria Cross affected his life and self-identity. He is open and honest with the typical humility he is known for and respected for. Just to note, Willie deals with aspects of mental health that may be upsetting for some listeners. If that's you and you want to speak to someone about it, then there is a list of experts you can contact in the show's notes. That's all from me now. I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. I'm actually really honoured to be in this position. Like I said, I got to research a lot about you over the past couple of weeks. You're just a very inspiring person. What did you find particularly um, sort of that caught your eye? Look, it was more the fact that you got to share your story. Yeah. And your story can relate to a lot of people in different ways. But what you went through and what you did is obviously not the normal for the Mm. majority of the people. And we don't understand what you went through and Mm. what the others went through. And so we find that very inspiring. But the fact that you are still Willie Apiata, a normal Kiwi bloke. And ah, cool. that's what I love about you. The fact that you can still show that, that you have been able to show your vulnerability over the past few years. 
that's what I find most inspiring about you. Oh, cool. I thank you, Soph. You know what? You might be a war hero, but in my eyes, you're a hero of normality. Yeah. Of uh, what I perceive normality. And I do know what it can be like to be in the public eye. And yeah. it is tough at times. Yeah, no, shucks, it is. So the fact that you get to show that, has that grown over time for you? The You know, I think this perception of what, how people see you as, you know, you're tough, you're strong, you're courageous. Do you feel like you got to show your emotion and vulnerability or not really? I think I've managed to show our New Zealanders that we are all vulnerable. Mm. There's still a perception that I'm this woolly up yata VC that can't get hurt or, you know, like a superman almost, but no, I'm not. And I think that's through my story of I've shown that through emotion and my own feelings and that men can cry mm. and it's okay too and that it's just, it is just a normal feeling, you know. Um, individuals are exposed to something that's quite traumatic and gives them that shock, there are feelings that come from it. And then it's the ongoing treatment and therapy to that and how it's received and given and what you've done about it later on that really measures how you are and who you are and how traumatic the experience was. Mm. You obviously still get guidance and support around what you went through. Yeah. Yeah. I have PTSD. Yep. It's not an easy thing to live with. The hardest thing about PTSD is recognising you have it mm-hmm. for a start. So there's a lot of emotions that go through here, anger and sorrow and sadness and parts where you think you didn't do the right thing or anything like that. All those sort of emotions go through you. Uh, the biggest thing is when you finally find the strength to actually go and talk to somebody because... And my line of work was to show a weakness to myself to go get help mm. because I'm in a job where we're in the special forces and I don't want to be looked at any different from my mates. Mm-hmm. So it's that perception again of you've got to be strong and mm. get on with it. Yeah, harden yeah. up. Yeah. Yeah, but it's not the case, eh? So I found that I was a better person, a better soldier once I'd sought help. Yeah. And I saw that through, um, I suppose, my students that came through and from my peers. Where you seek help from, is that someone who understands what you've gone through? Um, I went, you know, when I got my own psychologist, uh, which I've been seeing now for well over 10 years, built a relationship with him. He understands. Mm. He doesn't ask me about the incident. I've told him maybe twice mm-hmm. in 10 years about the incident, but it's about the stuff that happens to me now. And that's what I'm after because, you know, we have... We all have challenges that we have to face every day and we put them in the category of this is what I can deal with now, so I'll I'll get it sorted, but stuff we can't. It's just finding the advice on how to balance all of those and patience to me is one of the biggest things, you know. Nothing's going to happen overnight. We've got to be patient and work towards being better, finding a bit of peace. So I think that's one of the tenets that come in from the regiment, which is the pursuit of excellence. I'll have PTSD for the rest of my life yeah. and it'll always affect me in different ways. And But uh, the thing is I'll always pursue trying to find peace with it and to try and find that balance by getting help Absolutely. when I need it. Yeah. So you're really a man of being used to being prepared for the unplanned 
most of the time, but... Uh, but what made the Victoria Cross so different? There's nothing different about the Victoria Cross. As for what happened that day, what I did was what any of the other bros would have done, any other soldiers, because it's what we train for. Someone gets hurt, we go and retrieve them from the action and bring them to a safe area so they can get treatment, and it's just something that we do. But it was done in a different context under pretty heavy fire, and they deemed it appropriate and it fit the class of getting a Victoria across. Well, the big difference about that is uh, it's one of the hardest things to ever be awarded, and it's a 90% chance of you being killed during the action to mm. get one. So it's the other parts that change your life after it. But as the actual what embodies what a Victoria Cross is, we're all brave. So you weren't prepared no. for what the Victoria Cross gave you after that? No, I don't think anyone is. I haven't met a VC yet that has ever been prepared. I only met 12 of them so far, <laughs> <laughs> plus myself. Look, it's incredible that you have received that for what you went through. There must come a lot of resilience and courage to be able to be in the position that you were in on that day. Do you think resilience is ingrained in you or did you train to have resilience? Resilience. You know, you hear that a lot, eh? You know, people use resilience so much. He's a good old friend of mine, um, Jerry Brownlee. Good man. What I like about him is he's a man of his word. I watched him on TV down in Christchurch one time and he goes, Jucks, resilience. I bloody hate that word. They always <laughs> use it. But, you know, to me, as we adapt ourselves to the environment and to the ever-changing situations, and it's, to me, it's resilience is life. That's all it is. When hard times come, what do we do? We adapt and conform ourselves to get through it. We look for support. And now they're giving it a name called resilience. But really, it's just a, just everyday life, you know. As I was growing up, family violence and all that stuff in your home, it's just getting through it all and ensuring that those people that support you, like mum, hero of my life, you know, they're there for you every step of the way. For special forces, when I was training for that, it's not really resilience. It was just like your training there, Sophie. I created the environments for me to be able to pass. And that was measuring myself, measuring my mental capacity, measuring my physical capacity pushing myself to the limits where I thought were my limits, but knowing that they weren't. You know, there are no limits to us. Our limit is our mind. That's what always puts the blocks up. But if you connect them all, your mind, your heart, the passion and the physicality of your body, nothing much that you can't do. We're our own blockers. I feel like I'm talking to me in a way. (laughs) What did the SAS training consist of then? The SAS selection course itself is no secret. Mm. You know, even civvies can come straight off the street and do it. And it is open to the military, and it's everything they do on a daily basis. But we just crammed it into nine days, that's <laughs> all, to create that pressure environment to get them to be able to firstly motivate themselves to be able to conduct the tasks to the standards we require. And that's all we ask. And if they don't meet the standard, they're on the truck and they go home. And that's all we require of them. So nothing we do is special in selection course, 
but it's a place where they can measure themselves. Sure. And at the end of the day, we look for those that can motivate themselves, regardless of whatever pressure is put on them, to still be focused on the task, because that's what our job is, regardless of what environmental or unnatural pressure we have on us, is to still stay focused on what our mission is. So you didn't make it through to the SAS the first time round? No. And why is that? wasn't ready. You know, I hadn't put myself through the vigorous training I did the second time. Right. So that failure there was just a, an indicator. You're not ready yet. Go back and get some more experience, mature a bit more. Because the second time I went up there, you know, it's one of those things when you stand on the start line, you know you're not going to fail. You know you're not going to not finish or anything. You know that you will pass. And that was the confidence I had on this finish line. On the start line was, I'm ready. I've done everything I can. Now it's just up to me. And I lost my rifle on that one, so I made it hard for myself halfway through. Right. <laughs> so, so I added another, shucks, I think about 15 to 16K on a, on one leg that I didn't need. But um, Well, I could give you a leg. <laughs> <laughs> I know you surely could. <laughs> I could have used one that day. I'll never forget because my mates, when they saw me running back with no rifle, no webbing, our belt order, no pack, and I was going the wrong way against the grain. And they go, are you all right, Brian? I don't know. You haven't seen a rifle laying around, have you? <laughs> <laughs> I said to the, the staff at the end of it, I said, you know, if I didn't find my rifle, you weren't going to find me. I was just going to run off into the bush and hide for the rest of my life. <laughs> <laughs> and I bet you didn't drop your rifle again after that. No, I taped it to my hand so I couldn't oh, put okay. it down again. <laughs> There's always a way getting through challenges, yeah, isn't there? There is. What do you think the biggest challenge has been in your life? I think the biggest challenge in my life is has been a good dad mm. and my boys. You know, that has been one of the most important things since I've left the regiment. I grew up with a, quite a hard upbringing. Well, not a hard upbringing, but it, was, it wasn't the greatest, but we were rich in what we had in our home. No, I just want to make sure my boys get some of the things I didn't have in life, and I just want to be a good dad myself. And that's purely it, eh? It's just be a good person. Each day be your best self. Yeah. That's all you can ask, and that's all I want in life. Amazing. Yeah. <laughs> it's all right, so. I'm sorry. It's all right. You know, so for everything I say today is always, and what I say to the kids is always my honest, appreciation of how I've lived my life and my reflections, no one else's. Yeah, look, I'm not, I'm not a parent myself, um, but my accident happened inside my family involving my dad and um, I know that he lives with PTSD. Yeah. He's someone that, like you say, is in a position that people have created that it's hard to speak out about it and... A lot of my reasoning and why has been to make him proud. So I know that your kids will be so proud of you and you would be a very good father. And showing them what you've learned over your lifetime, so how much that reflects into me as just as a child or someone who, you know, lives with an image that they can't get out of their head every single day can be challenging, but... To want to make them proud is the best feeling. So the fact that you want to do that for your kids, I hope that I can do that for my kids later. You will. <laughs> well, I tell you what, 
You know, you think swimming in between the lanes is hard there, Sophie. <laughs> you wait till you become a parent. They will challenge you and they will test you in every way possible. Oh, and I can it's imagine. the most amazing thing about being a parent. And, you know, I've got four boys and I call them the sons of anarchy because they challenge me every day, you know. But I think the most important thing every day is just to say to your kids, I love you, yeah. and hear them say it back to you, and it just makes everyone smile in the room. You keep the love in the house. It's it's one of the most beautiful things, and that's what the message I pass to all our kids around the country. Remember, empower yourself with love. Say it because it'll change the way you think. Yeah, my number one value mm. is my family, and I yeah. adore them. And gosh, they've been my biggest number one supporters, like yeah. you've said with your mum, and she's been your hero. Yeah. What's your favourite home-cooked meal? <laughs> my home-cooked meal? Wow, shucks. You know, my favourite meal is meat. <laughs> well, good choice. <laughs> I love a good boil-up with all my favourite things in it. Wild pork and even a bit of brisket in there, mouldy potatoes, piru-piru and dough boys and, you know, go and pick your own watercress and mix it with puha. And it's just great. So is that something you look forward to when you've been away? And it's even like just for when I have family coming, I will make a big pot. It'll take me all day to make it, Yeah. you know, cooking it slowly so by the time it comes out of the pot, it's all perfect, yep. you know, and then everybody sits down and you enjoy the meal and you just see the happy smiles on everybody else because, you know, nothing like food when it's in the belly that how it makes you feel. Yeah, gosh, yeah, I'm a big meat eater and so I think food brings people together, doesn't it? It does. You get to share yeah. and enjoy it's an important um, part of the day. Yeah. You know, I mean, my kids, we all sit around the table. It's where we catch up, even doing the dishes. Like, you mentioned dishes to children, they're like, oh, my God. But uh, but you make it fun and enjoyable yeah, for them to We put to some music on and it's where I catch up with them and we talk about their day, how school been, and have a little dance and <laughs> we'll listen to The Edge on TV because we always have music playing so that yeah. it's not a chore. It's something that it's part of our family day. What reminded you of home when you were over serving for our country? Oh, just my thoughts, you know, you just think of home. Never really missed home that much. Wow. And how long would you spend away uh, serving? Would it be weeks and months? Or, months. Yeah. Anywhere between six to nine months away. Wow. Because I'm a soldier. Like you're, you want to go to the Olympics and the Commonwealth Games, us is to go away on operations and put into practice what we do and then help the others and create a security there so that they can have some sort of normality in their lives. And, you know, it was a great experience working with the Afghans, amazing people, and same with these Timorians. And I had the best of both worlds. I got to serve in the jungle and in the desert in some of the most amazing places. You know, I've been in the Hindu Kush of all places. I never thought of And I drove up there. <laughs> what would you favour, the desert um, or the jungle? Oh, I love them both, yep. you know, because they're both different elements. Yep. I found the mountains and the environment of Afghan just harsh. But the only people that can survive there is the Afghans. They know it. For us to survive, we had carrying 100 kgs of weight on our backs to stay out there for a couple of weeks, and you'll see them with just a four-litre can of water and a bag of rice. Where are you going? Oh, hundreds of miles that way. But it's their home. But it's the most beautiful landscape I've ever seen. 
you know, you see the stuff on Mount Everest, you see it on TV and that, but you see actual, you know, the contrast of the earth and the colours of the earth changing as it gets down to the desert. As you can see hundreds of miles, it's beautiful. So really you grow with the earth yeah. and live on the means that we should work around what earth gives us. Yeah. And you do that much. today. Yeah. How do you do that today? Oh, I grow my own veggies. Uh, we get all my meat comes from all my uh, sheep at home, I suppose. I hunt my hikai, teach my boys, you know, that we only take enough that we need for a kai and we always give back. Pick up your rubbish, all those small little things. Yeah, yeah you know, you've got to be kind to the planet because it gives us shelter. It's clothed us. It nourishes us. So we can't just keep taking. Sometime we've got to give back. How did you adapt over serving for our country compared to what, how you trained here in New Zealand? Was it, I mean, you prepare to serve, obviously, over in Afghan, but was it really actually different when you got there? The landscape's different. The language is different. But, uh, no, the job is still the same. But right. all we do is adapt to the environment, I suppose, of the nature of the work we have to do. I just love the people. I was part of a mentoring team my last tour, and we got to live with the Afghans for the majority of our trips, so it's the only way to get to understand the people, their cultures, their traditions, and um, earn their trust. Amazing. Mm. So let's just touch base on what role you play now with our serving military and our soldiers and for them transitioning it out of the force. Yeah. So how do you give back today? For me, we created post-transition, myself and Jenny, my partner, to support the transitioning phase. It's been a tough road. Yeah. Since our launch from my story and the support of Jen and getting our message out there, we've created change within government. And within Veteran Affairs, they now have a careers management, I suppose, area now within Defence Force, and they have a transition cell, which they never had before. So even though I really haven't done too much, but from the launch and sending our message out there and the many uh, meetings I've had with the Minister of Defence and Veteran Affairs, you know, they're all on board, they all understand, and now they're sort of working towards what can we do for our soldiers coming home. So it's getting better. The best thing for transitioning out is that it's going to take a while. You know, uh, patience. It took me three years just to get used to being out and being away from my friends. That's anything I miss. And I think that's anything lots of our men and women of service misses was their friends. And well, it's like a family really, yeah. isn't it? You grow a family around yeah. you and... I can relate to that with yeah. my swim team, my core support network that I deal with yeah. every day, and they're my bestest of friends, and I yeah. am able to talk to them about everything, and whether it be personal advice they give me or yeah. professional advice. Yeah. I'm myself coming towards the end of my career. Yeah. <laughs> it's tough to know what that transition is going to look like yeah. for me. Yeah, there's part of me that is scared. Were you scared? Yeah. Yeah. You know, I had a whole lot of things that I was leaving with. I had a VC that I was leaving with. I had no idea what I was going to do. I really didn't 
think I was worth much, if you understand what I mean. What the hell was, was Willie Apiata going to do? So I ran in recluse for about three years. So I went out to Afetu, so if anyone wanted to see me, they really had to drive a long way to come and see me. I had a box full of all the requests that just kept flooding in every day. And I just kept throwing them in there, not reading one of them. And at the end of three years, the box was full. So I thought, shucks, I started opening it, and then I met Warren. Wow. Started looking for a manager, somebody to give me a hand, and I came across him, and he's been uh, an asset and a really good friend Yeah. since the day we met. So it's a new lease of life for you now? Pretty much, eh? yeah. I left because I wanted to be a dad. Yeah. My eldest son missed 10 years of my life, and I missed his life, so in the last seven years I've got to build a relationship with him, and I haven't missed a, a day of my two youngest boys. Being home and being dad and being part of their lives is is my new role in life. Do you think the traits that you learnt through serving your country are now put into today's world for you? Yeah, no, yeah. every day. When I joined the military, I joined a set of values that we live by. And uh, when I joined the SAS, then they came with their own set of values. And I've been embodied by those ever since I was 16 years old, and I still live them today. And one thing I had to create when I left the regiment was my own values so that I could give myself a lane to swim in through life, like yourself. Sure. Yeah, so um, I came up with my three values, which was my family always comes first. You know, if anything's going to negatively impact them, I won't do it. And... um, the institution of the Victoria Cross and where it comes from and all the people that have carried it before me. I have to honour the the responsibility of that and I live by the tenets of the First Special Air Service, which have high standards of discipline, Brookdale sense of class, human humility, the pursuit of excellence. I maintain those every day and just do the best I can. And one thing I tell my sons is, you're never going to get it right every day. Just understand that. We are all human, so mistakes are there to be made so that we can grow. Sure. Yeah. So you still, in today's world, you... Yeah, I still muck things up. Don't yep. worry about that. But the thing is I've got something to look back on to help me get past it. And that's and what it was like on. back in the SAS as well. Would you make mistakes or you yes, didn't have the definitely. chance to make mistakes? No, you make mistakes. We do all our mistakes in training. You know, and that's where we do it. We methodically, repetitiously train to iron out those things. We're the special forces of New Zealand, and we operate with all the Tier 1 forces around the world. So, you know, you've got to be on your game. Don't worry, we all make mistakes, but we try our hardest not to because at the end of the day, uh, it's our job to rescue the hostages or the people. Wow. You say that you're a team and you go over and you meet and you're with the other Special Air Forces. Do you think that in today's world they're doing more training than what you're used to or the training is different? or Oh, training's definitely different, definitely evolved because equipment, all the flash, shiny stuff, I suppose we call it, <laughs> and plus, you know, the environments change. I do want to touch a little bit on the Invictus Games. 
because I have worked a little bit inside the Invictus Games myself and have met an amazing group of people. And in particular, obviously, the Invictus Games are soldiers who have been wounded or live with PTSD. And they get to compete against each other from countries around the world. You have spent some time with them and uh, you're an ambassador and have been an ambassador for them. How's that evolved? Oh, it's an amazing journey. Shucks, it was myself and 12 athletes and we had a team manager and a physical instructor and a medic and a nurse. That was it on our first ever Invictus and I called them the Dirty Dozen and they competed in everything. Like, I tell you, they were just wiped out by the end of it and it was just, for me, that very first one changed my life because you could see that when they were competing, there were no barriers, no walls in front of them, and you could see a whole person. You look past all that, and then their family could see them. And, you know, there was just emotions of tears and joy. You could see around the whole arena of just watching them compete, be themselves, be whole, be in an environment where everyone that had all their limbs and didn't have anything were the ones that were out of place. Yeah. And, you know, it was an amazing thing to see and for our athletes to be part of that and to feel like they weren't sort of different anymore. So healing for them. And to Uh see that there was a light at the end of the tunnel. Absolutely. There is light there. That gave them the opportunity to come out of the shadows and know that Jacques have got purpose. Uh, In the Paralympics, we have a lot of wounded soldiers that have obviously healed and and now represent their country on the world stage at the Paralympics. And their stories are incredible of what they've gone through. And like I said before, we don't understand what you've gone through. It's not normal for us to understand Mm. how you've trained and lived to serve our country so when I do hear those sorts of stories of how they've been wounded, it's hard to hear, yeah. but my God, they can perform on the world stage and it's like they've never been wounded. No. You know, they've trained for it. They were really prepared for the unplanned. Yeah. So that does really adapt over time with you and travel with you. Everything happens when at least expected. Did you serve with anyone who is now a part of the Invictus Games? Yeah. Yeah? Yeah, no. He was on my patrol. And then he came, he was the captain of the Invictus Games, old JP. Yeah. It was great being part of it, you know, uh, all the prosthetics and that. Like I used to take the swimmers on the first one. And I tell can you. Can you swim? I can swim. <laughs> but, you know, getting our athletes ready for their thing. And I said, you pass all your legs. And, then, and I get in and I was just like, how long has it been since you washed your leg? And <laughs> <laughs> this thing is bloody humming and I'm walking down to the end of the pool with these legs like that. Oh, mate, we got to sort that out when we get back. <laughs> you could come to the Paralympics mm. and be my leg carrier. You know, even the guys in the wheelchairs and stuff, you know, that we were going to the boat. And he goes, oh, can I come? And I said, yeah, give me a push. No, mate, you want to come? You get yourself in the taxi, you know. And he says, oh, I love you, mate, because, you know, you just treat them like a normal person because that's all they are. You know? Does that yeah. open your eyes up what serving a country can give you and, you know, what happened overseas and it could have been you? What I see is, like, I just got a vision of how many of us get hurt Mm. during the process 
and the injuries we sustain. And um, I suppose that's what part of post-transition is, is to try and build those support networks and the support they need when we come home. It's a way of saying thank you for your service, that we're still going to look after you when you come back. That's it for me. Uh, when I joined, I knew there was a, a hard end to this role of or choice of career that I was taking part of. You know, it's 17 years old. I understood that. I just feel very lucky that I never got injured. On the day of the incident, did that ever run through your mind that you possibly might not make it? That was the last, the furthest thing from my mind. Yeah. yeah. I was a scared shitless, eh? Yeah. Hey, yeah, I was. <laughs> I wouldn't wish that experience on anybody because it is horrifying. Nobody wants to be part of that. But the first thing that came to my mind was just, where's my mates? Yeah. You know, and just to make sure they're okay. It was just a matter of locating them, getting us onto a safe place and then uh, waiting for our moment. Yeah. to get back to safety. That's where your team environment, you know, we never got back with that. It wasn't for my mates giving us a bit of cover so that we could run back even though we have to run through their fire. So that's trust, trust in your buddies that you know they're not going to hit you when you're going back, but they're doing everything they can to give you the protection to get home. You know, I carry it for everybody that was there that day because it was all of us that made us come home. You know, there was even Afghan interpreters. Nobody read up anything about him carrying out one of our guys. But uh, I remember Phil Goff came over. He gave him a citation and a thank you for what he did for one of our men. He carried him bare feet too. He never slept without his shoes on after that night. Because <laughs> 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 we were putting plasters and patching up his feet for running across the stones with our mate on his shoulder. So, yeah. I know you can't change things that day, but if you could tell yourself now of what you do know, what would the advice be? Nothing. I wouldn't change a goddamn thing there, Sophie. Mm -hmm. I still believe I was meant to be there that day to save my mate and to get him out of that firefight with these life-threatening injuries and, you know, everything that happens in my life, well, it, it happens. Yeah. What it does is it gives you reflection to look back on so that, shucks, if there's anything I want to change, I can do it now. Oh, I'm a firm believer in fate yeah. as well. Um, yeah. I believe that, you know, losing my leg is the best thing that ever happened to me. It's like us today, sitting there having a chat, so <laughs> we're meant to be here having a conversation. Absolutely. Hey. Look, the VC is absolutely very, very deserving. Mm. What did that moment feel like for you? Uh, receiving it and having to tell your family. Well, shucks, telling the family that was the toughest. Oh, well, that was the hard part. But um, when they called me out of the office, basically, I was up in the orderly room. I had to go and have a shower, get myself sorted, and then I, I went up to the CO's office and three letters are there. I only had to open the first one from the Queen and I knew what it was all about. And the first thing I said to them was, going to help me to the world. And they went, yep. I said, oh, yeah. I suppose in the days leading up to when it first went on TV, it was just sort of surreal. Mm. You know, I knew it was happening and they'd sent people down to look after my family and stop them smashing the TV to pieces, you know, getting prepared for it to come out. And then um, when it first came on TV, that's when it really shook me. 
Did you see yourself as a soldier on TV or did you see yourself as Willie Apiata on TV? Uh, I saw myself as the world knows who I am now. You know, I come from a place where I was just fully, just a trooper, serving as a soldier, and now I was a South person. That has been the toughest thing every day of my life, mm. It's just to be willy. Trust willy. must be a massive value for you because obviously people see you as Willie Apiata VC, mm. and then you obviously have your friends and your family who know you for yeah. Willie Apiata. I can definitely relate to that mm. myself, and that's why trust is a really big value yeah. to me that you create over time. Your friends and your soldiers didn't see you as any different. Yeah, things changed. They couldn't help but change. And if I think uh, you'd be uh, sort of pulling the wool over your own eyes if you think that people's perception of you didn't change after that. Even at home, even with my family and that mum, you know, her perception changed. Uh, I was now wallpaper, <laughs> you know, and my sisters look at me a little bit differently now because, you know, I carry this massive award, you're a public figure. They're only real natural ones that just treat me as woolly as I'd say would be my sons, mm. especially the youngest ones because they just see normal old dad and he's just going to get dad questions and answers all day and my eldest boy, yeah. he's lived it. I've sort of tried to groom him to get a bit more of understanding of it, and then he really gets it now. Would you encourage your kids to join the SAS? I encourage them to be the best selves every day and just to be them. I won't push them to join the army or I want them to find their own passion in life, what they want to be as young men. Mm. Do you feel like you want to go back? No. It's no. a life you've lived and yeah, I did everything it's I wanted part of to your do. chapter. Yeah. There's nothing I didn't do. So, you know, when I got the VC, it sort of uh, shrunk my capability due to being a public figure. My family started to grow, so it was time to come home and stay home. Do you ever wish you weren't awarded the VC or on a smaller scale? Oh, no, I suppose just like the reflection we had before, so was... Mm. Shucks, it's happened. So, Everything uh, happens for yeah. a reason. I just do my best every day to, to carry the tongue they've given me with the responsibility it comes with. Really, it was fame overnight, which not a lot of people get. No. And shucks, yeah, life-changing, very much so. Trying to come to the grips with it all and the pressures that come with it, I think I've felt and been through most of them. And I think if it wasn't for coming up with my own values and meeting Warren and those sorts of things, things may have been a bit different. So it definitely helps having a manager to be able to manage, really, the, yeah. the influx your fame has given you. If I didn't have Warren, then I would receive everything. And um, I'm not the best at replying to texts or emails. I, I'll see it but because of my activity in my day. I always say to myself, I'll get back to that later. But usually it's a couple of days later, and then I finally realise, oh, I better reply to that. Warren gives me the, I suppose, the boundary between myself and the public. Mm -hmm. He's the one that says no, and he already, because of my values, that's all he he manages me by. So if anything steps out of those lanes, he knows that it's a, a big no no. I don't do media, which is easy for him, because mm. he just has to say no to them, and he knows that 
won't hop in front of the camera to do an interview live or I was anything like that. Very much in a similar situation to you that I sort of fell into a position of a manager right before Paralympics in 2012. Yeah. Back then they were called the Essentially Group. Um, now they're Halo and we're part of the same management yeah. company. But they are life-changing. It's amazing what a manager can do yeah. to offload and take basically our limelight role out of our life of being either Sophie Pascoe or Willie Apiata. I know. They give us the opportunity just to be ourselves. Totally. But yeah. they also give us opportunities to be a powerful inspiration to others. Yeah. Is that something that you never knew you were going to be when you were serving, but it's something you've been given? Is that powerful for you, That knowing that you are an inspiration to others? Very much. I, um, I find my inspiration... I've really tried to direct it to our young people. That's one thing I always wanted to do when I left the forces was to go back and help our young people because of so many people that helped me along the way as a young man. You know, it's those are all the, the people that shape us, not just our parents, but all the mentors and people that showed us a little bit, took the time out of their day just to give a little bit of their gift for us to take on our journey. So they were your educators? Yeah. And, you know, when I went to the Army, there was... You know, a whole army hall full of mentors and father figures and mother figures, and they just had really good traits, really good values. I loved the way that they nurtured us and brought us young people in, and all they wanted to do was teach us what they knew. And you couldn't ask for more than that. So to me, the gift of their knowledge was for me at the end of the day to give it to somebody else. Is there anybody that inspired you in particular? I know you said you've had a lot of educators and a lot of mentors, but is there one particular person? No, it's just my mum. Yeah. You know, shucks, since I was a boy, she's been there every step of the way. Totally. You know, there's not a day that mum hasn't pulled me up in when I'm in my late 40s now. Mum will still ground me. Absolutely. Yeah. But, (laughs) you know, it's the honesty I love about it and that no matter how hard things were, Mum always had things sorted for us, which was great as kids growing up. So if you were in trouble, she didn't take a picture off the wall? (laughs) (laughs) No. (laughs) I asked her to remove some of them because it's just getting too much. I can't (laughs) come up here anymore, Mum, because I just keep seeing my face. (laughs) Can you take some of the things down? What do those pictures remind you of when you look at them? It's hard to look at yourself. You know, I'd rather look at other people. I've had one portrait done of me, one sitting, and when it was finished, the artist sent me a iPhone photo of it and it was a depiction of me when I'm 80. That's what I felt. And the one thing I asked them not to paint was my hands and those were in the portrait and so no one's ever seen it. Wow. So I was asked for the portrait to be brought to me and it lives in my room and no one ever sees it. Can I ask why you don't want to show your hands? Because this is what I made my life on. Right. And no, for me, nobody else. For me and my kids, you know, I said to him, you want a portrait that's up here? But he put my hands in and I said, oh, well, I'll be the only one that gets to see it. Hands are my biggest value as well. These have been a sense of security for me. Being in hospital at such a young age, whenever I woke up from surgery, someone was holding my hand. Yeah. So it was a sense of security. And yeah. for me, they're such a powerful asset 
and now the other hands that drive me to win a gold medal <laughs> for my country. And they're now the hands that I hope someone will grab one day and grow a family. So I fully respect what you said there. Yeah. Well, they are our life. You know, I left school at 15 years old. I bugger all education at all, and my father couldn't even write because that's why I filled out the leave certificate for him and signed his name. <laughs> Naughty, so that's where it started. <laughs> yeah, you know, he made his life on his hand. He was a man of the land, <laughs> and he taught me that part. But, you know, when he left my life, um, I needed to find someone else to help finish it, finish a young man's training. So that wasn't, I suppose, I went and lived with the Parkinson family, Reuben Senior, and um, he finished off the rest of my training. He wanted me to be a rugby player in All Black because that's what he wanted for Ruben and Matua and Kaidui, his own sons. And Matua and Ruben, they went off to eventually get to play for the Super 12, you know, some of the the big teams that are playing around New Zealand. Mm-hmm. But I said to him, no, I just want to go and join the Army. You know, after the, I finally went on my first buddy training and... It just drove him nuts. He wanted me to be a rugby player. And I said, nah, that's not my road. It's this one. And then when he finally came around, then, then he supported what I was doing and he actually helped me when I was training for my second selection course. So school wasn't really a massive part of your life. You didn't see it as a big part of your life. No. I like school. Yeah. The education shifts and down there and the teachers teaching us, uh, I wasn't learning nothing. So you I, won't be signing the leaving papers for your sons? <laughs> no. <laughs> no. <laughs> Well, and it was quite horrendous, uh, the environments that we were in. So, you know, I was learning more at home on the farm with Dad and I was enjoying it more. So I I finished and started being a shepherd working next to my father. What made you want to join the army? It was just a truck that arrived. And my mate's place having a cup of tea one day and uh, when I saw him jump out of the thing with his uniform on. You were like slick uniform. I was like, whoa, how do I get in one of those? (laughs) You know, I've watched all the Rambo, First Blood, all the movies. I loved it, Chuck Norris, Delta Force, Navy Seals. I was always infatuated with army men. Yeah. You know, I used to play with the little plastic ones and that and dig holes in farmers' paddocks and stuff, me and my mates. But I was never thought I'd join the army until I saw that truck. And that was it. I asked him how to get on the truck. He said, come next weekend. And that was 23 years later. You say you're infatuated with the movies that show the gruesome and the and the big tough blokes that oh, are powerful. There was more the the machine guns. Yep. The, the uniform, the, you know, the camouflage, being in the jungle, seeing the cool stuff that they did, jumping out of planes. So do the movies replicate what you actually were serving? Everything that I watch in the movies I've done. Awesome. <laughs> Jumped out of planes, chasing boats and underwater operation, you know, it's all so been great. I live for the adrenaline of what racing gives me. Obviously, the Army and the SAS gave you that every day. Yeah. How do you find adrenaline now? I'm not looking for the adrenaline rush anymore. It's not something that I crave for anymore. Right. I look for more the slow down my life a little bit more so I can enjoy it. You know, so working with my horses, I've got to be patient. My moves have to be purposeful. They have to be, you know, slower than what I used to work at. For me, that's the toughest thing is trying to slow myself down because it's like I'm on ADHD all the time, but I'm not because I'm always doing something. You know, I'm a proactive person. 
I don't miss the adrenaline part. So if I want adrenaline while well, I hop in my V8 and go down to Mirimiri and do a couple of quarter miles with my kids. <laughs> nice. And I, I can imagine, are your kids they're full of adrenaline? They, they're petrol heads. They're full of adrenaline. You know, children, young, they wake up full of adrenaline and they spend their whole day burning it out right up until they hit the pillow. So you don't miss jumping out of a plane? No. Or... I hate parachuting. Right. Now, I don't like flying that much. But because it was the job. Wow, I would never thought I would hear that out of your mouth. (laughs) I don't mind jumping out of helicopters, you know, coming down on the ropes and stuff. That was amazing. I loved that. But the plane stuff and getting up high and being under a parachute and that, I didn't really enjoy it. My last jump, I think I landed in Birkenhead in a um, little sort of picnic area outside the front of a cosy club. There's about five of us. One of the boys landed in a tree at a school. Wow. <laughs> and you landed okay? Yeah, no, landed all right. Has no. there ever been a time where you haven't made a landing? Any landing you walk away from is a right. good one. Okay. Yeah, there's plenty <laughs> of guys that don't walk away from landings. Wow. Yeah. After... Racing, you know, you prepare years and, like you say, the training, you're ready to race. There is a little bit of fear of failure at times. Yeah. Do you believe that you ever had fear of failure or you carried a little bit? My fear of failure is letting my mates down, Mm. not doing my part. Mm. You know, so each day is training your hardest to ensure that you try and meet the expectations not only of yourself but what's required for your patrol and for your group, you know, because if we make a mistake, it's lives. Yeah. Do you have that fear of failure now as Willie up here out of VC with what the country now bestows upon you? No, I, I don't have any social media or anything like that. And, you know, I try not to sort of dwell on all that sort of stuff, you know, because it hasn't come from me. That's some other person's words and creation of an assumption that they think. You know, for me, if it hasn't come from my own home, well, then I disregard it. Sometimes the stuff is hard, especially when anything that's released to do with defence, they put my name next to it. You know, so that's hard sometimes. I think, you know, why do they keep putting my name up there? So helping members of the defence force transition into new life can you now say that you've transitioned into new life? Every day we're transitioning. Okay. And I'd say that someday it'll be your turn, Sophie, to transition from the pool into a new life of being Sophie Pascoe. Yeah. You know, then you'll, you'll understand the challenges. And, but, you know, the thing is try and prepare before that actually comes. At the moment we have time. So transitioning is really an ongoing process. It is, you know, because for a long time I was away from my family and now for a long time I'm with my family. So we all got to transition into building the family bond up again and because I'm always home and you know, it's been seven years now so I'm well and truly embedded back in the house and have a normal routine. It's, you know, the one day at a time thing but trying to prepare and plan prior to it all happening. Do you find um, routine is something that came from the SAS? Because I like with swimming, I'm so, it's regimented. It's, you know, routine every single day to obviously better ourselves. And I'm the same. It's really hard when I lose that routine. And I found that with COVID this year. 
so you have to have a routine? Is it pretty hard mm-hmm. for you to sit down and just chill out? Very much so, especially even if someone says, oh, I'm going to do tea tonight. I find it very hard to sit down and just relax. I always sort of end up, oh, do you want a hand with anything? Can I wash the dishes? So that sort of person, they like to be sitting there doing nothing. It's sort of always feel that endearing moment of you need to help. Yeah. yeah. But um, I get told to sit down, so I listen. <laughs> <laughs> How do you relax? Me? Yeah. My horses? Yeah. And my kids? You know, my boys didn't play rugby this year, so I ensured that while well, on our weekends we will do something outside. So we either go to the beach so they can um, just hang out and play in the sand all day or we'll take the horses down there, go for a ride, for a day ride down Kariotahi Beach or spend a weekend in Afati catching eels and geese and deer. But I think the last time we went out we got the big three, an eel, a goose and a deer. And it's just those things for the boys, fishing in our pond at home and just, just doing outside stuff for them. So that's my relaxing time. Even though I'm doing lots, but I'm relaxing because I'm seeing my boys do stuff. We were just talking about movies and war movies. Do those, when you watch them, bring back what you went through? Yeah, they bring back moments of it. Yeah. Not what I went through, but just moments of my military life, you know, because uh, there's some good movies out there that are pretty close to the environments that I've been in and how they were and how they interacted with each other and some of the environments. The Lone Survivors, I think, is a really close one too. And does it trigger? I have all sorts of different triggers. Music, Mm -hmm. some different songs, even just parts of the day or, um, you know, a movie or a part of it or it'll just trigger a memory, but they're not all bad memories. Most of them are just sort of, you know, I remember that and it just makes you feel a little bit emotional. But other than that, oh, I'm pretty good. The earlier days were the days that were really hard. Yeah. yeah. Now I, I manage pretty well yeah. with my PTSD and and it's just keeping the checks and balances. Absolutely. Do you ever wish you could be anonymous? It's a lovely thing, isn't it? We all wish that there, uh, Sophie, but um, yeah. it's not the case. Eh? So you can't dwell on the things we don't have. No, so. but you have been able to share a pretty amazing story out of it, which has inspired and encouraged a lot of people to relate to their own lives. I suppose that's where the, you know, I wish sort of doesn't come into it anymore no. because I can tell my story. Yeah, a lot of my friends can't. Mm. They're still serving, a lot of them, and some of them just haven't had the platform to be able to share their story with our people. When you walk into a room, Willie, it's very powerful. You are a very powerful person that people just feel safe. We feel safe around, and whether it's not we've created this perception of you that you would absolutely take a bullet for us, if I use that analogy. Mm. It feels that way, and you've created that about you. But there's this sense of humbleness and still a Kiwi bloke that is just so, so powerful. Then that, that's what I was saying before about what I love about you, that you can walk into a room and 
you can make a whole room stop and you can hear a pin drop. Ah, what does so. that feel like to you? Pretty nerve-wracking. <laughs> <laughs> it does. You know, shucks, any time before I walk out on stage when I was doing my speaking stuff and that, uh, it's, it took days for me to prepare for that, mm-hmm. just mentally to walk out and to embrace the crowd. And the toughest thing is when the room is so quiet Yeah. and you're speaking away and you're going, shucks, am I, is this going all right or what? You sense and feel the emotions of the people and, you know, I suppose one of my biggest vulnerabilities, I'm a shy person. I really am. Yeah. I think I carry all the traits of what my mum taught me as I grew up, and that's to be a warm person. You know, I'm all about the hugs and stuff like that, and I say I love you to my children, and I think that just because it makes my nature a bit softer than that it is. But, you know, it's only my kids that know all my facial features and that, and they always look at me and go, Dad, are you all right, Dad? Because they see a facial expression change, and no, I'm fine, son. And just through that. Some of those things just softens things. But um, I really appreciate your words because I don't don't hear that too much, if you know what I mean. It's, I get it from a lot of our school kids when I interact with them because cause I tell them my honest story and then some of them, you know, that's what's happening in their life. Yeah. That's already happened in mine. So it's given them a reflection that I'm not the only one. Yeah. Well, I mean... I was pretty emotional coming into this podcast. I think just because, like I said, I could relate to you in a way that obviously I have no understanding about the army or what you did overseas or what you went through that day. But the PTSD and the images that you live with every day, I know that my father lives with every day. Mm. So to have that relation of I understand when it's really tough for my father. You know, the biggest moment for me was my very first gold medal and yeah. listening to the national anthem, my father's in the stands, and he's not an emotional person at all. Um, you know, he's far from it. He's your so-called typical Kiwi bloke yeah. that doesn't share a lot of emotion. And to see him shed a few tears... Um, and that moment when I'm looking up to him and the national anthem is playing yeah. is very powerful for me, and that's my why. Yeah, and um, that would be an amazing. You'll keep that image with him for the rest of his life. I, you know, uh, my day uh, images when I when I have seen them, I I know the sounds. I can still I know the smells. Yeah. Everything it's and everything's exactly as it was that day, as it was yesterday. Have but, you changed uh, them into good images? The images will never change. They will always be the same. But I've got a better understanding of it all now. They're safe. Right. You know, and um, I've had a chance to put a few things to rest now, what was really doing my head in about it all. And, you know, like I said to people now, it's just I go and get advice to help me with what's going on with me now rather than you can't keep digging up the past, we've got to move. It's like the weather. It's not going to be raining all the time. The yeah. sun will come out <laughs> sooner or later as it is today. Yeah. Hey, so there is a bright light. So the SAS is obviously secret, and there was a, a long period of time before the story actually came out of what you did. 
is that hard when you obviously can't share a lot being in the SAS? Uh, I mean, could you share it with family? No. No. That wasn't hard. Just say nothing. <laughs> so you can keep a good secret. <laughs> yeah, you just say nothing. You don't lie to your family. You know, you can't tell them what you can't tell them. And, you know, that's one part of our aspects of our job. They just have to get used to. Being a serving soldier, when I joined up, I knew that my family would always come second until the day I left. Because yeah. I never say no. Yeah. And when that word appears, then it's time to move on. Yeah, Jesus. So how did the story come out? Uh, like, for you, when the story did come out, was it hard? Was it, did it make Willie up here out of VC harder to live with or easier to live with? I'd say prior to the VC coming, I was going through my PTSD then in the early stages of trying to recognise what had happened to me. I drank a lot, fighted a lot. I did all the things that PTSD does to you at the start of it all. I wasn't a very nice person at all, at work or at home. My son was the only thing that sort of kept me borderline a little bit of sanity, spending time with my boy. But other than that, I was I was going through a tough patch, real rough patch. And then when the VC came, Shucks had just put a hell of another whole lot of weight on my shoulders. So I really struggled, really did with it all. And then I had, I suppose, you know, I had a lot of fathers around me telling me what was this is the right thing to do. So what the hell do I know? You know, I just found my way at the end of the day, and you know that's why mates are so important because. There was a few of my mates that said to me, hey, bro, you need to go get something sorted, mate. You know, I don't like, they didn't like what they saw. Mm. You know, so I took a good hard look in the mirror and I didn't like what I saw looking back, so I went and got help. So what was the point that really made you go and get that help? Alcohol. Yeah. All the other stuff that you could get to numb yourself and um, starting to turn into a very aggressive person and not a nice person. You wouldn't have said all those wonderful things if you hadn't met me back then. You would have went, shucks, that's quite a scary person. I think now we recognise, obviously, depression and PTSD more so with obviously understanding it more yeah. um, in society. So I probably would have seen someone who does need help. Mm. I wouldn't have seen you as a bad person. And you might say that because obviously mm. I know you now. <laughs> But I think we can understand as a society because we are learning more every day about depression and PTSD that people do need help and it's yeah. okay to ask for help. It is. Because it's scary. The unknown is scary. The uncertainty is scary. But we evolve as people. Nothing is going, shucks, what's wrong with me? Mm. Hey. Yeah. It's, for me personally, it's been a really tough year. Mm. Obviously with the games being postponed, Till next year, living with the daily uncertainty yeah. of whether or not it's may go ahead or not. Yeah. I've put my life on the line for wanting to be a world champion yeah. and uh, it just all disappeared. Yeah. So it has been a super tough year and having to learn to ask for help. I have an amazing team around me and like you said, 
yourself, you've got amazing family and support team around you where you feel, and they notice as well when you're going through a really rough time and they were the ones who told me, you need help, Soph. So it's important to really put yourself around a trustworthy group of people who love and understand you. You've got to have a good group of people around you. If it does, it makes a massive difference. Yeah. You know, uh, what you're going through is exactly what our our Invictus athletes have gone through, you know. We were meant to go to The Hague at the beginning of the year. You know, it's all that uncertainty. What are we going to do? You know, what's to look forward to? I always say, you know, the biggest thing we've got to do is just, we've all just got to have patience. We can't change what we can't change, but we can adapt. And that's where your resilience thing comes into it. (laughs) So what would you tell me or the other Invictus athletes? What would be the advice you'd give me? Be patient. Mm -hmm. First be patient with yourself and then be patient with all the others that are around you that are are trying to make things happen and support what you're trying to do, you know, and uh, have another goal. You've got to find something else there to help channel that energy that you have that is making you upset because you can't have the other one. So it's okay for me to struggle through this period and others struggle through this period. Because we're all going to struggle, so So we all struggle together and paddle the waka in the direction that we want to go because we're all feeling it. You know, it's like when I'm on patrol. You know, if I was a lead scout and my legs were starting to tighten up and I was getting cramped, you know, we'd already cut few mountain passes and that still the pitch black dead at night and you're waiting for the sun to come up. But your mission is to get to this area and secure it. Now, if I'm feeling that, I know everybody else behind me is feeling the same pain. And if I say, hey, I can't go on, then they're going to all be wanting to say that. So it's up to us to just keep paddling the waka because we know what we're feeling, others are feeling. We can't give up because that's not what we're about. Yeah. We're people that are motivated to do something better in life and better ourselves and push forward because, hey, it's not about giving up. It's about adapting to the environments and situations. And that's where your resilience will come in. So it takes a team to become a leader. Yeah. We're all leaders, you know, and when you practice your values and you live them every day, those are the, all the qualities of what a leader is because you live by your values. Yeah. You know, you don't have to be loud and bolsterous to be a leader, Soph. <laughs> you can lead by yeah. saying nothing. All it takes is body language. That's how I work with my horses every day because I haven't met a horse yet that can understand English. <laughs> <laughs> when I talk to him, he still looks at me and goes, yeah, I don't understand the word. So you say. don't speak horse? No. No. <laughs> so, okay. But all I do is I move and do stuff with my body, subtle things with my body, and um, the horses react to it. And that's the language that I use with them. Is that almost like your SAS group, your horses? Yeah. So we don't talk on a patrol for three weeks. You barely get to say a word. Everything's sign language and gestures, body language. When we're working at night, you're working off the body language of the guy in front of you. Because wow. all you can see is a silhouette. So words don't need to be spoken. So you are almost actually living a little bit of your previous life as a soldier now, but in a different environment and in a different way. Mm. Because with horses, 
the first thing that'll make them anxious if you walk up and your shoulders are up like this. Why? Because we're tense, eh? But, you know, when you know a person's relaxed, their shoulders are down, you know, and they're walking forward, you know, hands are open, or you're not in no threatening manner, the horse will be relaxed straight away because that's the sense they have. You know, when I work with a horse and he gets all excited, if I get excited with him, then none of us come back to the level. So if I stay the same, the horse will come back down to me. And you know, I'm actually getting very amazing imagery of not even you with your horses, but you as an SA soldier out in Afghanistan mm. when you're talking to me like that. Yeah. Because you imagine going to a room with absolute chaos in it will cause even more confusion inside there that only we can see through, I suppose, through the the way we conduct ourselves when we go in. It's concise, it's professional. Everything is done off body language. The only word you might hear will be clear. That's it. But everything's just done off the movement of your mates. And when we go into a room, we're able to see through all that confusion. And that comes through, like, being in the pool, repetition, 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 repetition. Goodbye. Goodbye. What do you think people can take out of your story? That is true and it's honest. And um, maybe that's just how we need to be. So you live with integrity? Yeah. Well, that's exactly what I feel here and yeah. what I have felt this whole um, session. Be true to yourself. That's okay. all anybody wants to see. Amazing. Who are you when you're outside of Willy Apiata, former corporal in the New Zealand Special Air Service and recipient of the Victoria Cross? I'm a partner. I'm dad. I'm a brother and I'm a son. And I'm an inspiration to our people of New Zealand because I'm the only living Victoria Cross holder. And I will carry that mantle in honour with the responsibility that it comes with. Thank you for listening to Outside the Lanes, a podcast proudly brought to you by Westpac New Zealand and produced by Raw Collective. I hope you have enjoyed this episode, and if you did, I would appreciate it if you could rate, review, and subscribe to Outside the Lanes podcast. It helps other people know that it exists. Thank you again to my wonderful guests. Until next time.